clock says nine o'clock. And I'm supposed to stop at about quarter till, is that right? Yes. We'll do our best to do that. Well, first of all, I'll introduce myself. I'm Buddy Payne. I'm from Tampa, Florida. And it's my first visit to the South Franklin Church. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, as probably everybody knows, we're going to be speaking today three times. And then tomorrow evening and Tuesday evening at the factory. That'll be another first for me. <laughs> but we sure hope a lot of folks come. I've been watching the uh, work you're doing, and thank God for that. And we hope we'll have lots of guests at that uh, experience. Our whole point, of course, is to magnify the God we serve. For this hour, you can see the topic. And I want to start by saying this is a two-part lesson. So this is my first advertisement for part two. <laughs> It'll be at 5 o'clock tonight for the second half. It's a long enough topic, there's no way you can touch it in one lesson. In fact, you can't touch it properly in two, but we certainly need two, and I hope you can be back, and we're recording it too, aren't we? So if you don't get the opportunity, you can listen to part two, but please understand, I don't like leaving folks hanging with a lesson, but that's a requirement for this lesson. And I leave it hanging in such a way that you don't want to be without part two. All right? Good to be with you this morning. Let's have a little prayer as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we offer thanks for this beautiful Sunday morning, for the opportunity to gather in the name of Jesus, and for His great promise that where two or three are gathered in His name, He will be there in our midst. And we're reminded today that You are here in our presence, and that we need to honor You and magnify You, and that our purpose in being together is to lift You up in the eyes of all, to proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord, who we serve and we pray with all of our hearts, give our lives to him. Bless our worship and service together this morning. In a special way, bless this study. We pray that your word will also be magnified in the eyes of all. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this is a topic that I think is important for Christians, and I don't know if you have studied this topic before, but whether you have or not, I think you'll find this useful. I hope so. There's lots to learn about this topic, and uh, you children, I expect you to pay close attention too, because there's lots to learn, and we need to be confident that we can trust our English versions. Everybody in this group knows that God did not give us his word in English. That is a long and variegated story. So, can we trust our English version? That's an excellent question, it seems to me. So I want to start this way. Would everybody please hold up your Bibles for me? You've got them with you? I like it if there's a church where everybody brings your Bible. Your children all have your own, right? Okay. If you look around, everybody has a copy of the Bible, and even if you're guests, there's copies for you. Maybe you have your own anyway. But uh, everybody typically, when I talk about this, in the whole audience has a Bible. If you're like me, you probably have 50 more at home of various kinds of copies of the Bible, many of them in English. I happen to have several in Romanian and German and Dutch. My daddy preached in Holland when I was a little boy, so we have a little bit of that in our family. But there's lots of Bibles in all kinds of languages. My question today is, can we trust our English versions? So, I want to start this way. 1229 A.D., there was a council called by the Roman Catholic Church in Toulouse, France. So here's a picture of 
where Toulouse is down there in southern France. The reason they called this council at that time was there were some problems going on in that section of the world where people were teaching things with which the Roman Catholic Church disagreed. And so typical in those days was to call a council of the church and set down laws made by man telling them what you could and couldn't do. This particular council passed 45 canons. Anybody know what a canon is in this instance? By the way, this is a class, so you're allowed to answer me. Law. It's a law, and in particularly in this case, a law passed by a human organization, in this case, the Roman Catholic Church. So 45 laws were passed for the extinction of heresy and the reestablishment of peace. They said there were folks teaching things that were false, and one of the big problems in their view was can canon number 14. I want to read it to you. Here's the 14th canon of the Council of Toulouse. We also forbid the laity. Y'all know what laity is? It's us. <laughs> As opposed to what's the other term? Clergy. The clergy, ladies and gentlemen, in that time was the folks appointed by the Roman Catholic Church to lead. They were ordained by the church. Everybody else was laity. So that's us. <laughs> we forbid the laity to possess any of the books of the Old or New Testaments. Except perhaps the Psalter. I think I know what that is. That's what we call it the Book of Psalms. Or the breviary for the divine offices. I don't know what that is. Or the hours of the Blessed Virgin. I don't know what that is either. But they evidently considered that an inspired document of some kind which some out of devotion wish to have, but having any of these books translated into the vulgar tongue, we strictly forbid. The word vulgar in that time meant common. In our time it means something nasty. In that time it meant common. So what were the languages allowed, does anybody know, by the Roman Catholic Church? For the Bible. Latin, Latin and Greek thankfully, because that's what it was written in in the first place. Or Hebrew, right? For the Old Testament. But any other languages were considered vulgar. Now the fact is, Latin didn't come along until some years after the Bible was written either, so it was also vulgar in that sense. But it was allowed because it had been accepted for centuries. But anything else, what do you think would happen based on the Council of Toulouse to somebody who was found in possession of a Bible in the common tongue. What do you think? Death. Death was one. I mean, if you decided to repent and give it up, you didn't get killed. But it was certainly one of the things that could put you to death. So I will tell you in 1229, if I had asked you to raise your copy of the Bible, nobody would have raised their copy. And if you don't know it, you live in an age that is highly unusual. In most of the history of mankind, most people did not have their own copy of the Bible. First of all, it's too expensive. Second, folks, not, a lot of folks didn't read. So they had to depend on others. But the fact that you, every one of you, have your own copy of the Bible is amazing. It's incredible. And you need to be realizing how blessed you are and now the question is, the ones you have, I assume everybody's Bible was in English. 
I doubt too many of you read Greek and Latin. So how can we be confident that our English versions are trustworthy? And my point is, a lot of time has passed since the Bible was first written, and we now have English versions. Second, many things have happened, would you agree? Lots of things have happened in two and three thousand years. And given the difficulty of translating text from one language to another. How many of you in this room have had a different language that you've studied during your life? Raise your hand. Okay, several have. And you know then how difficult it is to translate some things from one to language to another. I tried to learn Romanian when I was 50. Forget it. <laughs> it's very difficult. And besides that, the way they construct things is different than it is in English. So, it's a challenge. So, it's a very good question to ask. Can we trust our English Bibles? Because, folks, that's the ones you know how to read. Can you trust that what you're reading is what God wants you to have? Good question. So, let's try to answer that in part in two lessons. So, my first answer to that question is, you should not trust some versions in English. And here's why. Some of them are translated by biased people. So the New World Translation, translated by what organization? Anybody know? Jehovah's Witness Organization. Why don't you open your Bibles, everybody, to John chapter 1, verse 1. Probably you could quote that verse. Well, here's that verse in the Jehovah's Witness Organization translation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Is that what yours says? No. What's the difference? And the Word was God. Okay, there's no little letter A there, is there? No. And what about the word God itself? It's capitalized. It's capitalized in English, isn't it? Is everybody in this room capitalized? Not in this one. And the reason for that is the Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a created being. He was not on equivalence with the God of heaven, the Father. He is not the Son of God in that sense, according to their doctrine. Well, is that what God said in John 1.1? 1, 1? That's the question, you see. Because there's an English version that says that. You have an English version that says something different. The question is, whose version is the correct one in terms of the original? And may I tell you that when you look at the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament and you study them, this version has no substantiation. It's not supported, but it's still there. And so my comment to you is, if some version you're using has been translated by one group of people, you be careful. Because it is too easy for their bias to be introduced into the translation. And look, that's a mighty small difference, isn't it? And by the way, did you know that in the old text, in the Greek, there's not capitalizations. In fact, in the most ancient manuscripts, they're all capitals. There's no capitalization like you and I do it. So that isn't even a change. Because in the Greek text, they're all caps. Every word is capitalized. In fact, all the letters are capitalized. So that's not even a change. 
But when you put it in English and you make that change, it communicates something different. In fact, folks, this only changes the entire message of the Bible. Because the Bible's message is Jesus is God in the flesh. So can you trust the English versions? Not some of them. How about this one? The Living Bible Paraphrase. Do you want to use a Bible to trust your salvation that's been paraphrased? I hope not. This one was produced by one man named Kenneth Taylor, and it contains very much of his bias as he paraphrases what the Bible says. It's a rephrasing of the Bible, thought for thought. But whose thought? In his case, it's his thought. So I thought I'd give you a couple of examples that reflect his faults and weaknesses. Here are two of them. Ephesians chapter 2. Why don't you turn to your Bible? Ephesians chapter 2. And my old King James Version. <laughs> Do you have it there for me? Yes. Would you read Ephesians 2 verse 3 for us in Old King James? Among whom also we had all had we all had our uh, conversation in times past, the lust of the, our flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Yeah, the last part in the Old King James says, "And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." Here's what Ken Taylor said in Ephesians 2, verse 3. We started out bad being born with evil natures and were under God's anger just like everyone else. Now, folks, that's an English translation. <clears throat> it's a paraphrase. That is not what the verse says in Greek. It's very important for you to understand when you translate, sometimes it's hard to translate word for word. It just is. But you cannot take the translation and completely change what it says. Which is what's happened here. And then 1 Peter 3, verse 21. You want to read that one? Do you have that one for me? And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the place, but an appeal to God for the conscience. Right. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, is what the English American Standard says. New American Standard. Look at what it says. In baptism, we show that we have been saved. Well, that's only the exact opposite of what that verse says. But it is, is it in an English version of the Bible? Yes, it is. It's in Ken Taylor's paraphrased Bible. I don't recommend that Bible to you. Other versions should be used with careful judgment. Because the purpose of their translations, and by the way, in your Bible, if you'll go to the front in the introduction, the translators will tell you what their purpose was and how they went about it. Because several English versions were produced by committees of scholars, I recommend that to you folks. If you're going to use a version in English, use one translated by a committee of scholars from different backgrounds because they check each other for bias. That's important. But some of them have an intent of meaning-for-meaning meaning translation rather than word-for-word. Word. And when they do that, you've introduced a new possibility for variance and for bias. 
Here are a couple of translations that have that purpose. The New English Bible and the NIV, which is one of the most popular English versions in America and probably in the world because it's, it's kind of easy to read and people like that. I just want you to be notified that if you read the introduction of those Bibles, they will tell you it's a meaning for meaning translation. That means it can introduce some additional problems with the translation. And I think there is some. So I would recommend be careful with those. The most trustworthy English versions are those that are translated by a large committee of scholars from various backgrounds. Second, who have produced with the intent of giving the world an accurate word-for-word -word translation of the best available Greek and Hebrew text. That's what you want in English. The best available Greek and Hebrew texts have been, a, have been used. And second, their intent is word-for-word, word, wherever possible. Now, there's some expressions in languages you can't translate very well. So in, e in English, when I was preaching in Romania, I used this example. Those guys were just barking up the wrong tree. And the guy over there translated it literally. And everybody says, what is that? Nobody had a clue what that is. So if you were translating that to somebody so they'd understand it, what would you say? Say it again? Wasting their time. They're wasting their time is a good way of saying it. Now that's not exactly those words though, is it? You barked up the wrong tree means wasting your time. Well, it kind of does because what is it referring to? Kids, do you all know what that means? You're barking up the wrong tree? You probably don't even know. Have you ever been hunting? No. <laughs> it's when a dog is chasing a coon and the coon goes up in the tree and the dog's standing at the base of the tree and the coon's not up there. He's barking up the wrong tree. The coon's over there. So it is a waste of time. It's the wrong direction. But you can't translate that bark up the wrong tree into Romanian. Okay? So you have to do some meaning for meaning, but your main purpose should be word for word to get the exact meaning. Some examples of these are the, the Old King James, 1611, which brother, I've forgotten your last name. Brother Mitchell still uses, which is fine. The New King James, which was an updated version to put it in modern English. And the American Standard, which you still use, right? And uh, he's going to be my ASV person this time. And the New American Standard, which was an updated version of that to put it in modern English. And there's a newer one called the English Standard Version that a lot of folks are using. And it's really, it's built on the same basis. So those are the five that I would recommend to you in English if you're going to pick one, to read what God wants you to know. And it's because of the reasons I explained. But here's what my new King James says. May I confess to you, I was an old King James too guy, Brother Mitchell. But when I got to Romania and I started preaching in old King James English, those guys were lost. They couldn't translate modern English very well. So I switched to the new King James. And I did because it maintains some of the beauty of that version. Don't you love that? That's the most beautiful English version ever written, I think. And the New King James tries to preserve that. But here's what my King James says at the beginning of it. 
Our purpose is complete equivalence. It seeks to preserve all the information in the text. Isn't that what you want if you're going to read what God said? Second, it is appropriate that all participating scholars sign a statement affirming their belief in the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture and the inerrancy of the original autographs. Did I lose you? Every translator had to sign a statement they believed the Bible's the Word of God. And in its original autographs, it's perfect. That's who I want translating my Bible. So this version openly tells you that's what they did. And then, the New King James Version follows the historic precedent of the authorized version. May I say that in British? The authorized version. 1611. By whom was it authorized, folks? King James. King James. Like who would bury the King James' tomb? King James authorized the version as the King of England. Was he a nice person? He was a reprobate. But he authorized the version to be translated. And what he told them was, make it as true to the original as you can make it. That's a good thing. New King James tries to follow that same maintaining a literal approach to translation, except where idiom of language occasionally cannot be translated into another tongue. And we've already illustrated that. All right. But even these English versions, the five that I've just recommended, will present you with differences. So, Brother Mitchell, I want you to turn to Philippians 1. Everybody else turn in your Bible. Philippians 1. And I'm going to give you the verse here in just a second. I want you to read 21 and 22. Let's first make sure everybody's there. Everybody at Philippians 1. We're going to read 21 and 22 out of the old King James. So go ahead. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. Is that what it says? Want not. Yeah, be careful how you pronounce that. Yes. <laughs> it's that word. May I say it in British? Because Old King James would have been written in British English. Yet what I shall choose, I want not. I want not. Kids, do you know what I want not means? Most of us have no clue what that means. You say that to a Romanian, he says, what? Say it to an English person, he says, what? We don't know what that means. So the newer version says, yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. That's the new, new King James. It really means, I'm in a quandary. There's other words you could use to translate that expression. But I want not doesn't get it in modern English. Okay? So there's still differences. Different wording in English to represent the same Greek and Hebrew text. New King James says there is also an antitype which now saves us, even baptism. And you're said in the American Standard corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Now those are different. But they make, they make the same message, don't they? Both of them tell you that baptism now saves you. So that's what you're looking for. But the fact is you're going to get different wording in different versions. So why are there variations in the English text? 
because there are many ancient manuscripts and other documents in which there are variations, folks. And you need to get real about that. Because there are lots of different English versions of the Bible. How you choose which one you're going to use is very important. The relative importance given to these various manuscripts in Greek and Hebrew help determine how it's translated into English. And I'm going to try to show you that as we finish up today and, and tonight. Let's take some examples. So I want everybody to open to Acts chapter 8. And you are my man, American Standard guy. You have the old American Standard? I believe so. Okay, now you listen closely to my instructions. I don't know what your computer does. But I want you to read it without any footnotes. Okay? No footnotes. I want you to read what's in the text, not what it refers to in a footnote. And I want you to start at verse 36, and I want you to read through verse 38. Okay. Everybody with yours, Acts 8, he's going to start with verse 36. Go right ahead. And as they went on the way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch saith, Behold, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, If thou believest with all thy heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they both went down into water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Okay, did you use the old American standard? It's what it's, the, the app says. I don't, my other one. That's why I don't like using computers. Really? I've got the new American standard. Okay, does it have verse 37? Yes. But it's not in the footnote? No. Okay. Well, it depends on which one you're using. Let me show you. See, he only messed up my whole point here. Because <laughs> when you read that verse, that verse 36 through 38, in the old American standard, verse 37 is in a footnote. It's not in the text. You listening for me, people? It's in a footnote. It's in parentheses. In yeah, 77. it is in the New New American Standard. In some of them, it's in a footnote, yeah. depending on which book you're using. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to show you the different versions of this. Everybody look up here. Here's what the old King James said. And Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered God and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's verse 37. In the old King James, it's just there. No issue whatsoever you wouldn't know there's any problem at all with verse 37. In the New King James, it has a little star. Do you see that star right there? Mm -hmm. And at the bottom, the star says, N-U-M, omit verse 37. It is found in Western texts, including the Latin tradition. So it's got a star by verse 37, and then it quotes the verse in modern English, just like it is up here, but it is identified as a problem in these two things, in you and M. And you say, what is in you and M? And my answer is, five o'clock this afternoon. Because <laughs> I don't have time to talk about that this morning. But that's important. All right, so what does the American Standard, the normal American Standard Bible, if you had a book, it omits this verse and puts it in a footnote as follows. 
This is what's in the old American standard. Some ancient authorities insert wholly or in part, verse 37. That's what the old American standard said. And then it says, and Philip said, if thou believes, and it quotes it, but do you notice it says wholly or in part? Some ancient authorities, and by that they mean manuscripts, don't have verse 37. Or they have part of it. So there are varieties among the old manuscripts. Alright? Then here's what the new American Standard does in the one I had. It has brackets around it. Like that. See? And then it has the little one, and down at the bottom, mine says early MSS. What do you think MSS stands for? Manuscripts. Manuscripts. And by the way, does everybody know that manu means hand and script means writing? So a manuscript is a handwritten document. And the oldest copies of the Bible are handwritten. So this says early MSS do not contain this verse. Now that's not a very much of an explanation, but at least it gives you a little hint. Now, may I just say something here? If you're reading along with somebody you're studying the Bible with, is Acts 8 a common place you go to teach somebody about conversion? Well, it's the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And he says, I want to be baptized. And then he confesses Christ, and then they baptize him. Don't we use that all the time? It's embarrassing, folks, if you're studying along with somebody and they have a version that doesn't have verse 37. And you don't know what to do about that. Because that is the fact. English versions vary on that point. So the question is, and I'm just throwing it out here, class, does verse 37 belong in that passage or does it not? Some versions have questions about it. That's just reality. And you need to know reality. I'm not trying to undermine the Bible, folks. I'm trying to be real with you about what we have. I hope I didn't confuse anybody. All right, that's my first example. And we're going to kind of play the clock here. Let's see. For this next one, shall I try you again on the American Standard? I don't know if I will trust you or not. Do you have a book of it or just a computer? At my house. At your house. I should have called you ahead. Does anybody have an American Standard with you? I got a better, a better one. My. Uh, you got an American Standard book? Not a book, but the actual app did that I have. It did emit thirty-seven and put it in. Well, thank you. <laughs> you have a better app. <laughs> All right. Do you want to use yours then? Yeah, yeah. For the old American Standard. Old American What's your name, by the way? Joseph. Hi, Joseph. Welcome. Thank you. Good to have you. You may save my day yet. <laughs> All right. So here we go. Next one I want you to look at is 1 John 5. Everybody turn to 1 John 5, please. In your Bible, whatever it is. And I'm going to ask now that Joseph read 1 John 5. And Joseph, no footnotes. Okay. <laughs> read only what's in the text of 1 John 5, 7 and 8. In fact, why don't you just read 6, 7, and 8. Just start with 6 and read all the way through 8. Okay. Is everybody there? I want to make sure everybody's ready. Okay, go ahead. Loud and clear. Jesus Christ 
He is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three are in agreement. So, it had the footnote right there after that. Yeah, but you're not reading that. No. Everybody, is that what you said? Yeah. Isn't there a bunch of it missing? Not in yours, right? Not mine, because I got that in the footnote. Okay. <laughs> well, I want to tell you, if you're reading along with somebody in 1 John 5, and they read the Old American Standard, it reads quite differently than this. This is the King James. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one, and there are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. What he read doesn't have any of this right here. Does it? Now, folks, that can shake you up a little bit if you're not familiar with it. Because we're talking about the five standard versions of English. And they disagree with one another on that verse. So the question is, which of those is the best translation of what's in the original? Because class, do we have the original 1 John? Do we have the original letter? No. The answer is no. What we have is copies of it. And then copies of copies. And then copies of copies of copies. We don't have the original. So what was in the original is the question. And even in English, the best versions we have have disagreements. So the question is, which is the best translation? Okay, so let me show you. The New King James has the same thing as the Old with modern English, but look. Right there it has a little star again. And down at the bottom it says, In you and M omit the rest of verse 7 and through on earth in verse 8, a passage found only in four or five very late Greek MSS. You see that? At least the New King James identifies for you, reader, that there's some problems textually with that verse. Do you need to know that, Bible student? I think you do. You don't want to get caught blindsided. Because the question is, which of the translations is the most accurate of what is originally in the original autograph? All right. Here's what the ASV said back in 190, whatever it was. And it is the Spirit that bears witness, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three who bear witness, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three agree in one. There is no footnote and no reference to anything in the original American Standard. And I will tell you, at my school where we teach Bible, our Bible faculty all use the American Standard. Back in those days, in the early days. Now they use the ESV, by the way. Back in the 80s, they used the New American Standard. Yes, they did. They went up to the New American Standard. You were there then. I was. 
But here's the thing is that the original American Standard did not even have a footnote there, and the original New American Standard didn't either. You probably didn't know that. But my 77 edition did. Yeah. <laughs> there have been modifications in the New American Standard, which is fine. Because the more you learn, the more you ought to introduce into the text. But it was no footnote. And so look, folks, if you're reading 1 John 5 in the Old King James or the New King James and the American Standard, they are different and you don't know why. That's not good that you don't know why. All right, so here's the next one. Mark 16. Everybody turn to Mark 16. Now, I know this is a passage most of you have memorized, at least part of it. What's the verse we use all the time, folks, in Mark 16? Verse 16, right? Can you say it with me? He who believes and is baptized will be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. Mark 16, 16. That may be one of the most quoted verses in all of the New Testament. By us, at least. <clears throat> Because we believe in baptism. A whole lot of other folks don't, except not the way we understand it. So what's the point about Mark 16? Well, is there any indication in your Bible, look at yours, is there any indication in your Bible that there's any issue with Mark 16, 9 through 20? There is, isn't there? In some of them. Let me show you. The old King James has Mark 16, 9 through 20 with no comment whatsoever. No comment. Now, folks, that was 1611. They were doing the best they could. May I just introduce something right here? The 1611 translators did not have access to the three most important ancient copies of the Bible. I want to say that again because I lost half of you. The King James translators in 1611 did not have access to Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus. The three most important copies of the Bible manuscript. All of which date to the three and four hundreds. They didn't have access to any of those. Would well, you think that might make a difference when you look at these passages as to how important those are versus others? Yes. And it was after 1611 that the Alexandrian became available first. Vaticanus had been there. Where do you think it's kept? In the Vatican. That's not a hard question. In the Vatican. But do you think the Roman Catholic Church religious anybody have access to that? No, they would not. It was kept secret behind closed doors for centuries. Not open to the public till just fairly recently, like the 1800s. And then Sinaiticus? Now that's another story. It wasn't even discovered until the 1800s. And I'll talk more about that tonight. But the fact is, the King James Version in Mark 16 made no reference to any textual issue whatsoever. The New King James does it this way. Do you see the little star there again? Mm -hmm. At the bottom it says, verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in NU, 
as not original. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other MSS of Mark contain them. So I'm giving you a little hint ahead of time. Codex Sinaiticus, discovered in the 1800s, is missing Mark 16, 9 through 20. And we're going to show him that tonight, aren't we? This man has practiced. We're ready. And Codex Vaticanus is also missing that section of Scripture. We'll talk about that tonight. But at least in the New King James, you're alerted to that fact. And then the ASV has a marginal note. The two oldest Greek manuscripts, which I just named for you, and some other authorities omit verse 9 to the end. Some other authorities have a different ending to the gospel. And when they say authorities, what do you think they mean? Manuscripts and versions. Because class, there are some old versions of the Bible also. A version is, a, is an ancient document that's been translated into a different language. And there's some of those that date way back. And here's what the NASV says. I don't know what yours says, but this says some of the oldest MSS omit verses 9 through 20. Many MSS add the word Amen. So, three of the four versions that I've recommended at least give you some clue that there's some textual challenge here. And verses 9 through 20, that's a pretty hefty section. By the way, did you know, class, that verses were not in the original? (laughs) You did, didn't you? There were no chapters. There were no verses. There were no punctuations. In fact, the oldest manuscripts are all capital letters. All run together. There's no paragraphs. No sentences. Okay? And you should be aware of that. There's been things added by men to make the Bible easier to use. So, let me just use one more here. When the Philip caught up with the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8. What was he doing when he caught up with it? Class? What was he reading? He was reading from Isaiah. Do you remember where? Isaiah 53. Yeah, so what he did was just got out his Bible like this, right? And flipped over to Isaiah 53. Easy enough. And it's all divided up into chapters and verse 1. Right? Wrong! He didn't have anything like this. Are you kidding me? What do you think he had? Probably a scroll like this, handwritten, all capital letters, because you're talking the first century. That's how they did it. Animal skins or papyrus. And they wrote letter by letter, one letter after another, all caps, no punctuation. No chapters. He didn't know he was reading Isaiah 53. There was no 53. It was that section of Isaiah on his scroll. Now listen to me, class. God picked up a preacher named Philip from Samaria and physically moved him 
to the road from Jerusalem to Gaza. You remember? And set him down and said, go catch up with that guy. And he ran up to catch him. What was he riding? Cadillac on a superhighway, right? No. What was he riding? A chariot. And I hope he wasn't reading while he was driving. That guy was an important person, don't you think? Ethiopian eunuch. What was his job? He was the treasurer of the whole country. Do you think he was driving his own chariot? No. He was not. He had a driver. And he was reading. But I want you to picture this now. The roads were terrible. And he's in a chariot. And he's reading from a scroll with all capital letters. I'm going to show you tonight what that looks like. But here's how it was going. <laughs> we don't have the picture here, folks. And where had he just been? He had been to Jerusalem for what purpose? To worship. Why did a man come 1,200 miles from Ethiopia all the way to Jerusalem to worship? There was only one reason. What was it, class? He had to be a proselyte or a Jew. Probably a black man. If he was, he was a proselyte. And he came all the way to Jerusalem to worship. And now he's on his way home. Trying to read. Was this man passionate about learning what God wanted him to know? I think I know why he picked Philip up and planted him to see that one man. He wanted to know what God said. Because what did he ask him when he came up? What's this talking about? Stop the chariot! Have him get up here and help me. Did he know who the man was? Well, not as far as we know. So he let a total stranger get in the chariot with him. I can imagine if there were some soldiers around, they were like the Secret Service guys. They were saying, what are you doing? You don't know this guy from Adam. But he sat and listened as the man opened to him the Gospel starting with Isaiah and preached Jesus to him. Amazing. Why did I say all that? Because look, folks, the text of the Bible has gone through lots of changes over the years. And God has protected it. What I want you to get out of this lesson and tonight's, when you leave, is a deeper appreciation for the fact that God has said, My word abides forever. Have people tried to destroy the Word of God? Over and over again. They're still doing it today. But God's Word abides. And how He has preserved it is an amazing thing. So, we've introduced some challenges, haven't we? In our next lesson, we will focus on the New Testament as we deal with the question of variations. There are variations in the English versions because there are variations in the Greek and uh, various versions of the New Testament. Whoops. 
There are more fundamentals about this subject that every Christian should know. We will see you at the next lesson. That's advertisement number six. <laughs> Hope you can be back tonight. And thank you for your good attention. That's the class for this morning.